Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there. Are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit ViralGrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. Welcome to today's episode of Brave Commerce. I'm Rachel Tippograph, the founder and CEO of Micmac. I'm Sarah Hofsetter, president of Profitero. And this is a show that talks about what's relevant in e-commerce for the world's biggest brands. Sarah, you and I both have similar and complementary backgrounds. We grew up in digital marketing. I made the leap to e-commerce a few years ago. You're jumping headfirst into it, even joining the board of Campbell's Soup to add to your list. Yeah, I am so fascinated by the grocery business in particular. And this dates well before I started working in this space. Like when my kids were really young, my alone time was in the supermarket, walking up and down the aisles, marveling at the complexity. And my favorite thing was discovering new products or uses than I had before. Granted, I didn't have much of a life. My kids were young. Even when I travel though, because I only eat kosher, I get stoked to visit a supermarket and see if they have special kosher products that I couldn't find at home. So this is why you keep talking about how much you love the new book, The Secret Life of Groceries. Yeah, I know. I'm like a broken record about something so insanely in the weeds, but yeah, I kind of get excited about this. Being in the weeds is about how things are made and it's what makes us curious and frankly, I think better at our jobs. The author of The Secret Life of Groceries has agreed to join us as our guest today. Let's bring Ben on. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining. First author on the podcast. Actually, I discovered you while reading the New York Times book review for your new book. So print is still alive, both for the Times and for your book. So congratulations on that. Can you um, share with our readers a little bit about the book and your journey towards getting the stories that you uncovered? Sure. Well, look, I'm flattered and thrilled to be the first author, hopefully of many. Got to keep the writing community alive. The book is a wide-ranging look at the grocery store. It's a little bit hard to pithily encapsulate. I wanted to understand how the grocery store functioned. I'm one of these people who loves grocery stores. If I go on vacation, I want to go to the grocery store in Nairobi or Paris or Tokyo 
So it really was born out of that curiosity of how does this institution that's kind of banal, but also somewhat like profoundly miraculous in the abundance and choice and low prices that it offers and, and the way it puts options that would have been impossible for like pharaohs or kings a few hundred years ago to, to imagine in front of us on a daily basis so completely that we take it for granted. The book follows a series of stories of people I thought were emblematic of how groceries get to shelf. It starts at the top. I was lucky enough to spend time with Joe Kalum, who founded Trader Joe's and kind of unpacked a lot of the insights he had when he was founding Trader Joe's and then kind of descends down to, to voices in the grocery chain that you hear less of. So I went on the road with a trucker who introduced me to the system of logistics that kind of gets products to shelf and explored that world, which was fairly horrifying and unsettling. And then worked in a Whole Foods, broke into factory farms with activists to kind of look at the system of certifications and audits that underpin retail claims. I went to Thailand to look at the bottom of the commodity chain and spoke to a lot of like branding marketers to look at like the decisions behind why we buy and, and what ends up on shelf and, and how that's connected. It's fascinating because I also like going to the supermarket whenever I get to a new city and I still have stuff from a trip to Johannesburg Woolworths. <laughs> nice. Woolworths there is like a regular supermarket, like not the way it is in New York where actually it probably doesn't exist anymore, where it was more of a five and dime store. It's like a full on supermarket. And I mean, for me, because I only eat kosher, I'm so excited to find things that are kosher certified, which is just an extra element of fun and discovery. But that's Ben's next book, The Secret Lives of Kosher Groceries. <laughs> it's, it's going to be like more of a booklet. <laughs> There's actually a fascinating, no, kosher was really was key to the rise of like the certification audit regimes and like looking at, at how kosher standards came into being. I went, went did a kind of deep dive into kosher research at one point, none of which made the book, but it was like pretty important for building backgrounds on like how audits are, are, are done. Kosher was something that people really wanted a guarantee on before people wanted guarantees about whether something was rainforest friendly. So secret life of kosher, it's out there. You know, it's interesting that you say that. I, I'm trying to remember, I, I once learned what one of the first kosher certified products was. I think it was Heinz ketchup in the States. Yeah, cannot confirm or deny. Uh, the research has, did not stick. It's like it's like cramming for a test. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it didn't go back 100 years? Go figure. It's, it was a book that was really exciting to research for the, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time looking at the history of grocery and kind of how the grocery store evolved into the, you know, 125,000 skew or like individual items store that it is today. So with grocery stores, there's always this moment in economic times when a recession happens. And what we saw in 2008 was that the recession actually created the rise of private label brands because all of a sudden consumers were, you know, conscious of what they were spending. During the pandemic, Sarah and I sit in these seats where we have lots of insights into what people are buying online when it comes to grocery. And we see, especially in America, people turning to namesake brands like Hershey's. So with the upcoming potential recession, how do you think this all plays out for private label brands in more of an e-com driven world? And what's your advice to retailers right now? 
Yeah, it's a super good question. First, I think that shift to these namesake brands, it just speaks to this larger kind of comfort moment in the middle of upheaval where everyone suddenly turned home ec and bought giant bags of flour and started baking sourdough. And I think the story with private label will be really interesting because I don't know how long that comfort moment is going to last. You know, the first wave of the pandemic is over. Now we're in the third wave and people are getting restless. And I feel like they're looking back to that voyage of discovery back to curiosity. I guess in terms of concrete advice, I think a lot to like conversations with Joe Kalum of Trader Joe's and uh, Kevin Kelly, this retail architect. And, and for them, both of them, I think pricing and private label always was a secondary consideration, except for when it related to like cannibalizing higher margin products that you're already working really well with. It was always about identity. Like identity and private label was everything. So how does your private label speak to the attributes of your brand and by extension, your target demographic that you're trying to hit? Like what position is your private label taking? Who's it making uncomfortable? Who's it offending? Like, oh, this is too cheap to be good, right? That's, or like this, this information is so unnecessary. Like the reasons that your private label can be dismissed, they're also the reasons that it's talking to somebody else and being meaningful. And I think that identity component feels like one, like a really important consideration generally, but also even more of one when thinking about private label and recession. Well, I actually love that because what you're saying is when it comes to private label, it's really about brand. Yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. The antithesis of what you think from a consumer angle. That's right. Yes. And I think that's a big error. It's like, oh, private label is generic. It's like, we're just going to strip everything out. And yeah, that's one way to play the private label game. And that will work for you if your entire brand is based around, you know, cheapest possible price. And I think that that's a valid approach, but there's only a few people who are playing that game at any one moment and who can win at that game. Much better option, you know, if you're, if that doesn't line up with your brand identically is, is to, to figure out what your customers really want and then offer those options for them. It sounds like one of our earliest episodes, Sarah, with uh, Che, the CEO of Boxed. Absolutely. Very much so. And what, what's interesting in the book where you talk about how Trader Joe, how Joe, I just call him Trader, but, <laughs> but how he built the brand so that private label becomes part of that brand. You know, you can find non-Trader Joe brands at Trader Joe's, it's harder to find. And obviously, since the Aldi acquisition, a lot of other things have changed. But the idea of making the private label brand so approachable and actually so in high demand is very different and antithetical to the private label that I grew up with, which was, oh, God, don't buy that. That's not cool, which is how I was raised when my grandmother would buy like Wallbaum's brand soda or something like that. Yeah. And for Joe, it was all about how can I duck out of this commodity game that I can't win because I'm not going to be the biggest guy in the land. He's, of course, he's making these insights in 1967 or so, way before Walmart and Amazon. But they're all the more reasons that you're probably not going to win at the commodity game if you're trying to compete against those guys who are experts at selling lumber yards of food. But they're not experts at your consumer base and the people who are who are shopping through you. And and that's where you can get this edge by by creating unique value. And, and Joe had, you know, a fantastically detailed set of characteristics that he had kind of come up with for the Trader Joe's consumer, but that's what worked for him. 
They have to read the book to find out more about that because that was a really fascinating part. And guys, you're just going to have to go buy the book. Yeah. That's it. I'm going to, I'm just going to cut you off there, Ben, because you're going to be giving out, you're, you're, you're giving away the spoilers. It's all good. Cut me. <laughs> o- only because I know his psyche is just absolutely fascinating. He was, a, I mean, I, I walked into the book thinking like, okay, Trader Joe's too good to be true. I'm going to try to take him down a pedestal. It's full of these chirpy employees who are too happy. The prices are low. They're all got this health halo around them. This is going to be a story about, you know, there is no free lunch and all, all of these things come out of some cost somewhere else. And, and there is some element to that, but far more was just like, Joe was a pretty visionary kind of guy. And I, I use that word sparingly. He was a real smart dude who saw around corners and, uh, and created opportunities for himself. Shout out to Trader, formerly known as Joe, but uh, I've actually had a very good friend who lost his job, took a job at Trader Joe's, and it was amazing to hear his experience and the health benefits that were provided to employees. So it's all true. Yeah. Let's take a minute to predict what will happen to e-commerce in 2021. Rachel? Well, you know, it takes 21 days to build a habit, and we experience nine months of the coronavirus. As a result, people who've been buying lots of their products online, they're not going backwards. Yeah, that's definitely the case. Maybe you'll walk into a brick and mortar for certain things, but now that you kind of know that you can do it, it's here. And with that, new technologies will enter the market to make unit economics around last mile delivery work. I think what we also learned is that e-commerce is not just for the young. You know, one of the fastest growing demographics in 2020 was boomers. And just like we saw the millennial D2C landscape blossom over the last five years, we're now going to see that for the baby boomer and boomer demographics. Oh, definitely. I mean, the fact that my mom's got an annual subscription to Instacart is, I don't like doing research, but that was pretty epic in my opinion. Another one is companies are going to struggle and they've struggled in the past, but when e-com was such a small percentage of revenue, it wasn't that big a deal. Now, I think they're going to be struggling around defining what's incremental, what's not, new behaviors, and how to fund it. And then perhaps the biggest challenge of 2021 is that it's going to be really hard to comp in 2021, meaning most of these publicly traded organizations have one metric that they care about. How did we do this day last year, better or worse? Because some e-commerce sales were out of this world this year, it's going to be a lot harder next year, which means there's going to be a new amount of pressure that's going to be put on the e-commerce organization to show that they continue to perform and grow in 2021. It's going to be a hell of a year. We better get some good guests. I have a feeling we will. I feel pretty good too. All right, let's get back to our guests. Now I'm like looking at the book. I want to pull out like there was one one paragraph that I loved so much. I read it to my family. Maybe I'll pull it up later. There was just one that where, where you kind of like encapsulated it and it was so well-written, but well, well, let me move on in the meantime. So with all this in mind, the whole idea of creating this brand equity that, that Joe did, all the, we have these listeners that are representing some of these manufacturers that do invest in the brand equity for the companies that they represent. I think they're trying to figure out how do you get your brand to pop a lot more, whether that's in the store or on the virtual digital shelf. Like you had mentioned in the book and like a lot of our listeners know, the gateways you have to keep jumping through with the retailers to get the better distribution, to get the better uh, promotion is is just 
insane. Yes, it's crazy. Any advice on how to get around that so you don't end up on the equivalent of the uh, lowest shelf in the wrong aisle? Yeah, or you and don't end up at the store at all because you're not paying that trade spend that the retailer is demanding. <laughs> it's, it's a tough question. So I, in the book, I profile this woman named Julie Boucher, who's this an amazing entrepreneur who's selling a product called Slossa, a combination coleslaw Slossa. And she is just a hustler. She is just working hard. And I wish I had a secret that went beyond that. I think that if you're not paying in money to these retailers with straight up trade spend that they can convert into their bottom line, you're going to be paying in time. And Julie had a work ethic like pretty much nobody else I've met. She was on the move and, and racing around. I mean, she would always say things like be completely upfront with retailers that she was small, not connected to venture capital, and didn't have the money to play a slotting fee game. And so she was very transparent about that. And she would say, tell me how I, tell me how I can be your partner. Tell me how I can grow my brand with you. Let me give you something more meaningful than money, which for her, again, meant time, marketing, promoting both brands at once. You know, I think there's some traditional ways to do that with, with free tastings and adjacencies and things that put your brand front and center, but are giving to the retailer. But I actually think for Julie, much more of it was about like moment to moment looking for opportunities and just being on that kind of food entrepreneur grind, which is probably not the answer that everyone's looking for because it doesn't contain a secret, but that's what I saw. No, I think that does make sense. Hustle does make it happen. And there's got to be an element of combination of ingenuity and going down that local level. Although there was no Slasa in my local Walmart and there was no Slasa in my local supermarket. Like that's like not a real <laughs> brand. My local kosher supermarket. I'm still on the hunt for Slasa and Amazon is charging me a ridiculous amount. So yeah, but it is kosher. So I'm happy about that. If anyone's listening, send Sarah some Slasa. <laughs> Ben, Benjamin, I should say, you've done so much research. You've seen the underbelly of how this industry works. On a personal level, has this changed the way that you shop for groceries? <laughs> yeah. You know, I've been doing a ton of press for this book and I get asked that question basically every time and I don't have a good answer for it because the answer is kind of no. The book does not shy away from dark things and I think it gets pretty grisly. Uh, especially at the bottom of the commodity chain. And, and, and Grizzly is really not the right word for it. it. It focuses on the ways that the system is incentivized to, to, to really create conditions for workers that are completely undignified and, and immoral. And, and, you know, in the case of the book, we look at some of the, the most extremes in terms of human bondage and slavery and things that you as a consumer want no connection to when you're buying a product. And of course, as a manufacturer, you want no connection to because it, it's such a taint on the brand. I came away from, I first, I didn't want the book to be another book where people were like, oh, now I can't eat shrimp. I read this book. I know too much. It's off my list. I'm a good person if I don't eat shrimp. Because that's really not how the grocery industry is structured. The incentives are universal. The problems at the bottom of the commodity chain are, if not universal, so widespread that it's very unlikely that selective purchasing is going to be able to dig yourself into like a, a more righteous place. I, I kind of watched the the innocence in me that is kind of like buy your way into a more moral universe die 
with this book, which it, I always envision that the, you could vote with your dollars the way you vote with a ballot and, and make the world better. And I think that the structural incentives in the grocery world prevent that uh, for the for a large part. So it didn't change me in terms of purchasing habits, except for to make me much more appreciative of the abundance that we have <laughs> and think, okay, I want to pour this energy that I do have into making a better world into the avenues that will actually create a better world, which is probably thinking outside of food and thinking more on policy levels, on trade agreements, on unions that could to really create a floor for workers' rights. You know, if we're going to globalize marketplace, we got to globalize working standards because otherwise you just see problems displaced to poor and poor regions in the market kind of chasing them down no matter what the manufacturer wants. I got to tell you, you changed my eating habits. Not that I was ever eating shrimp, but I did move to organic produce after the trucking section. But I do understand your point on you know, not necessarily being there to, to change that, but I don't know how anybody could eat shrimp after, after reading it, but I guess it depends on where it's sourced from, right? It does help if you're kosher to begin with. Uh, it does, but the, the produce thing, actually, no, it, it did. Absolutely. I mean, I, I do think I would say rather than thinking on a structural, like, or like, what can I do? It's more like, what can I, what do I feel good about participating in as a consumer? And there are definitely choices. I, I don't, I will say I don't eat much shrimp after writing that section of the book, because if I do, I just don't feel good. I know too much. I don't feel righteous in that decision, I guess, because I also recognize that my decision not to buy the shrimp has a lot of consequences, possibly for the same people that I'm trying to help by not buying the shrimp. Uh, and some of those consequences are negative. You know, on a very personal level, I just don't really want to be associated with that. So, well, that's a. Uh... That's probably a more honest. No, no, answer. no. It's, I feel like I'm moving into a philosophy and ethics class, but but yeah. but it, it's fair. I you know we asked the question. I do want to read this section now. It's on page sixty six. Would you be okay if I uh, read it? Go read it. Okay, just because I thought I think it's just really well written. So, in this way, Joe, as in Trader Joe, made me believe in the idea of business, or rather, he made me see what business could be. And this is my favorite part. Our society is awash with founders, all listening to the same leadership podcasts, doing the same kettlebell lunges to improve their grip and leg strength at the same time, then dissolving their identical Tim Ferriss approved muscle building complexes into their post-workout shakes to transform their previously similar bodies into something more metabolically equivalent, all while making grandiose style projections about their own app disruption or innovation, whereby their personal self-interest miraculously aligns with the interest of society writ large and places them as CEO slash founder slash servant leader on the very prow of the vessel of civilization. It is lunacy, but somehow it is our lunacy the ascendant lunacy of my generation, which has put the IPO chasing founders in the same category we once reserved for poets, statesmen, and philosophers. Preach, <laughs> preach. <laughs> uh, I just, uh, it was so well written, but the reason I, that, that, that I'm bringing it up is because for those that are in an, the advertising business, we talk about personas and I don't think there's ever been a better brief than that to describe the kinds of people that would shop at Trader Joe's. <laughs> Well, I appreciate you reading it, and I feel great that I didn't have to read it. Uh, you did a good. You did good. That was great. Thank you. Well, now that I've spoken way too much, Rachel, why don't you take it from here? Hands down, this is already going down as one of my favorite episodes. So 
Congrats, Ben. You've made my list. At the end of every episode, we ask this one question. Benjamin, what is the bravest thing that you've ever done? Hmm. I would say, I, you know, the, the decision to become a writer mid-career was, was a tough one. I had always wanted to write, and I'd always planned on writing. And in fact, I graduated college and then uh, became a teacher because I wanted to write. Uh, and I thought, ignorantly, that being a teacher was a job that would give me lots of free time to write because you'd have summers off and you'd get off at like 3.30 p.m. But the reality is that actually being a good teacher uh, is extraordinarily taxing and demanding. And so for the seven years that I was a teacher, I wrote zero words and then woke up one day and was like, you know, this is a really great job. I love being a teacher. I love my students. I love my school, but I'm not doing any writing and I never will. So I quit and without having a book contract, then wrote a proposal and sold that to, to write my first book. But that decision to quit when I, you know, I was just turning 30 about, it was not an easy decision. And it took a little leap of faith in trusting that me who had no platform, no connections to publishing, no real writer friends could just write something and, and the you know people out there would pay any attention to it. Felt brave. Well, congrats to you and your 29, 30-year-old self. <laughs> Thank you. He's, he's now feeling a little less insecure about the decision, but still comes in waves. Well, it does for all of us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thank you guys so much for having me on. It was really great. Thanks. We really uh, enjoyed having you on and it will be uh, the first of many authors that we'll have on. So thank you for joining. Sarah, I feel like you should plug the book one more time. Where is it available? Yes, that's the answer. You can pretty much get it anywhere, but usual suspects. I ordered it on Amazon. You do you. Yeah. Indie bookstores everywhere and Amazon as well. I think one of the big messages of the book is that we love convenience. So it's definitely fitting to get it on Amazon as anywhere else. Well, if you're in New York City and you have Postmates, you can send someone to the Strand. There you go. And support a local bookstore and have convenience. There you go. Or books are magic in my, my little neighborhood in Brooklyn. Great bookstore. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and Google Podcasts. And don't forget to share this link with a friend. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality. Hi, I'm Jackie Cooper, Global Chief Brand Officer at Edelman and the host of Touch of Truth, a new podcast launching on the Adweek Podcast Network. My dad gave me this incredibly smart piece of advice. Meet everyone once. As a result, I've met some of the most fascinating and inspiring people on the planet. Now on Touch of Truth, we're coming center stage and sharing the mic to experience stories of truth, insights and visions for the future that will challenge your way of thinking. Touch of Truth is available wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out every Tuesday. I do hope to see you there.